Amen. Father, we have so many reasons to exalt your holy name. That time would run out and our memories would fail us if we could but recall your blessings and graces towards us in just the last year alone. For these reasons, too many to count, we exalt you, Lord, for providing for us our daily bread, breath in our lungs, the health and ability to gather in your name to worship you this day. Our families, the loved ones, those who serve alongside us in the kingdom, brothers and sisters in Christ, for these we exalt you. We exalt you when we think about the miracles of our salvation. Every believer in this room has received the miraculous sovereign touch of a powerful God raising the dead to life. A heart that once was stone cold, hell bent and dead in sin has been lifted from the miry clay, softened by the word and work of the gospel, the spirit and the word and is here ready and attentive, we trust, by those same means to listen to you. For this reason, we exalt you. We pray today as we behold Jesus Christ revealed in the pages of his holy word, that our hearts would bow low and that we would turn from our sins, that we would exalt him alone as the sovereign and savior, and that our faith would be strengthened and our lips would be equipped with the knowledge of the truth and that our footsteps would be straight and true as we seek to grow in obedience of the faith among the nations. May you be glorified in the proclamation of your word and the application of the same following this service, that the lost may be called to repentance and faith, and your church might be equipped for the gospel work of proclaiming your name until you come, dear Jesus. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. This day with grateful and thankful hearts, I trust we turn our attention to the Holy Word. Having worshiped the Lord in these songs, we now seek to worship Him by beholding the revelation of His glory in the pages of Scripture, the immutable, infallible, Holy Word of God. Join me in this, would you, by turning to Genesis 42, and let's continue to mark the evidence of God's work in the life of Joseph, in the second portion of this chapter, verses 21 through 38. The title of this morning's message I hope to refer back to several times is this phrase, the grace of guilt. The grace of guilt. Did you know that there is a purpose in guilt? And it is the grace of God that we feel badly about transgressing His law. Because it is this very movement on the heart of the individual that moves us, that causes us to repent of our sin, to place faith and trust in Christ, to cry out that he might save us from that which we deserve. The brothers of Joseph have received, have experienced the grace of guilt in our passage today. And thus we are able from this section in Genesis all the way through to the New Testament to proclaim the same gospel, the same gospel of grace from Joseph to Jesus. That's our aim in preaching this day. Out of reverence for God's scripture, would you stand again for the reading of God's word? Behold in your hearing the holy word of God, Genesis 42, 21 through 38. Here we pick up on the story of Joseph's brothers, verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against this boy? But you did not listen. But now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he, Joseph, turned away from them and wept, and returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack, and he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, 
They told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. 35. As he emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have betrayed me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me? Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons, if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. He said, Jacob, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring my gray hairs down with sorrow to Sheol. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, the anguish of Jacob, the brothers, under these circumstances, certainly comes out in the text, does it not? This bit of dialogue recorded in Holy Scripture gives us a behind-the-scenes look at the heart and the anguish and the sorrow, the suffering, the difficulty of reckoning with the conditions of the sinful world and the consequences of our own transgression against a holy God. The chickens have come home to roost. The day of reckoning has arrived. People will pay for their sins now. No use uh, avoiding it or no, it would be foolish to deny it any longer. You know, all of the kind of built up dam of the consequences has now broken behind the thin wall of deception. And now the waters of judgment appear to be rushing into the souls and into the experience of these people. Is there hope? Is there salvation under these circumstances? That's the question that cries out from the text. And gloriously, we find in Christ, ultimately, the answer is yes. Genesis 42, 21, Joseph's brothers confess, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. How is the divinely decreed path of life's circumstances leading Joseph and his brothers at this time? All of these life circumstances, all these details are the hand of God. And they are leading each individual appropriately so how are these circumstances, the famine, the journey down to Egypt, the circumstances of Jacob, his sons, their separation from Joseph, now the reunion unbeknownst to them, how are they leading them? Well, it's interesting, and the text illustrates that in one way is they're leading them to the grace of guilt. The grace of guilt in the case of Joseph's brothers is moving them to confession of sin, while the grace of covenant promises is leading Joseph to compassionate forgiveness. We remarked in our last passage that if anyone had right to exact revenge, humanly speaking, it would have been Joseph. Joseph, however, by these circumstances, is not moved to vengeance. He's moved to tears. What is it that moves him so? I suggest it is the grace of covenant promises. It's God's word to him and dream that had occurred so long ago that there would come a day when his brothers would bow before him. And now as his brothers bow, begging for food in his presence, he realizes the hand of God and the word of God are true. And so Joseph does not harbor anger, resentment, and vengeance, but instead he's moved to tears, compassionate forgiveness, recognizing that God is sovereign and he is leading his brothers to him at this time. A theme surfacing in this passage that might first, that might first occur to us as readers is the far-reaching consequences and the multi-generational nature of sin. It has been 20 plus years since the brothers betrayed Joseph, lied to their father, dipped his cloak in blood, told their dad, Jacob, that an animal had torn him limb from limb, sent him down the road to Egypt for measly shekels of silver, sold into slavery in Potiphar's household. The consequences of this action reverberate two decades later now in the text, and this is obvious as we read. Disturbing similarities and patterns keep emerging in these snapshots of mankind's history through the pages of Genesis, reminding us of the inescapable horror of a fallen world short of sovereign intervention. Do you guys remember the first sin recorded by the first two brothers all the way back in Genesis 4? Who are their names, kids? The two brothers of Adam and Eve. Do you remember their names? 
Cain and Abel is correct. What did Cain do to Abel, kids? Do we recall? He killed him in cold blood. That is correct. So this tension between brothers, fratricide, that killing of one sibling, comes to mind. And the tension in these broken home situations, it keeps a resurfacing. These patterns, these similarities, these snapshots of mankind and the history following the great fall in the garden, the inescapable horror of a fallen world short of sovereign intervention is a theme in the text from Cain and Abel to Ishmael and Isaac to Esau and to Jacob and now to Joseph and his brothers. The legacy of wickedness and family strife continues. What a tragedy. What a horror. What a broken world in which we live. But if we look a little deeper, we see a second theme emerging still. And this one has real power and gospel reality to it. And this theme is, might be less obvious at first glance, but it becomes clearer in the light of the rest of Scripture. Perhaps you noticed several places where a son is held as collateral for a loan, if you will. What's collateral? Well, dictionary definition, property pledged by borrower to protect the interests of the lender. So Joseph holds Simeon as collateral. And until the brothers fulfill their obligation to bring back their youngest son, he won't release him. Reuben offers his two sons as collateral or surety to Jacob and says, you can kill them if I don't return and make good on my promise, if I don't fulfill my obligation. So we see this more simply featured, uh, life is offered in the place of others. This feature of the Joseph narrative foreshadows the substitutionary in the place of another mediation go between sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, in the place of his people, fills this role perfectly. Simeon is bound before their eyes as collateral. Reuben's two sons are offered similarly. Jacob is reluctant to send Benjamin to Egypt, having lost two sons already, he figures, not realizing his other beloved son Joseph even now is ministering as a savior of sorts on behalf of his family. Here's the sentence I wrote down in summary regarding this theme. If the obligation is not fulfilled, the man himself will be the payment. Think about that. If the obligation is not fulfilled, the man himself will be the payment. We'll return to that theme at the close of this message. Let me give you a heading. Let us explore in this text how divinely orchestrated circumstances lead to the following. First of all, a confession of sin, verses 21 and 22. Secondly, a heart of forgiveness, 23 and 25. This would be in the case of Joseph. Thirdly, the presumption of judgment. The brothers assume they are being judged in verses 26 and 28. That is clear. Fourthly, a testimony of truth as they return to their father, 29 and 34. And finally, a sincere repentance, 35 through 37. Divinely orchestrated circumstances in the life of Joseph and his family are leading unto these things in our passage. First of all, a confession of sin. Again, just a little background in verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest of you go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Verse 21 then picks up in our text today. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress is coming upon us. Where are the brothers when they come to this realization? They're in prison. They've been in prison three days. And prison and solitary confinement, or at least in this case, with your nine other brothers, can sometimes provide you the opportunity to really reflect on your life a bit. Perhaps in the busyness of the famine and the crisis that faced these brothers in the everyday life, they had pushed to the back of their mind those sins of 20 years ago, how they sold their brother into slavery in Egypt. They could only imagine at this time what his fate might have been. But now they themselves, in bondage, in slavery, so to speak, in prison, in Egypt, have some time to reflect. And it would seem the Spirit used these three days in prison to remind the brothers of their guilt. The grace of guilt begins to flood their hearts with the realization that they have broken God's law and they now stand uh, worthy of his judgment because of what they did to their brother. 
Perhaps these circumstances bring that to their attention in a way they've never considered before. And this moves them to confess to one another, why are we here? Notice they don't say, this isn't fair, we deserve better, what are my civil rights? I, we need to protest, where's my lawyer? Call somebody to defend me. They don't harbor resentment and anger. Who does this man think he is? You know, we are covenant sons of the great patriarch. Somebody needs to bring this to this man's attention. No. Instead, they come to a place of soul that confesses by and strengthened by multiple witnesses that they have sinned. Who are these witnesses? They say, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. The first witness to their crime is Joseph himself. Now the scriptures don't record at that moment of sale the anguish of Joseph crying out, please brothers, don't do this, begging for his own life. So hardened they were by their vengeance and jealousy, <clears throat> their anger and resentment, and the unfairness they saw of their, of their father's favoritism towards their brother, that they in a blind rage sold him into slavery spit upon him, and did whatever they will. I mean, they were ready to kill this, this uh, man. But all the while, Joseph is pleading for his life. Perhaps you've seen some of those videos that are so gut-wrenching where somebody is a victim of the hands of abuse and they're crying out, please, they're reduced to just begging, tears. They have nothing they can do to defend themselves except appeal to the conscience of their abusers. No way to defend themselves except appealing to the conscience of their abusers. Joseph was reduced to this level. But the consciences of his brothers were seared. They didn't listen to his appeal until 20 years later when the Holy Spirit did a miracle and awakened their consciences back to life. And the cries of distress of their brother filled their mind again. And the Lord began to bring into their hearts the grace of guilt. We have sinned against the Holy God. Our brother and his anguish is a witness against us. A second witness. Verse 22, And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? Now there comes a reckoning for his blood. The second witness, as it were, was Reuben, the oldest, who had at least the sense to tell them, Don't do this. This is a stupid idea. And it will not go well with us. And so he tries to save Joseph unsuccessfully. Reuben also knows something about the word of God. He says, now there comes a reckoning for his blood. He tells them the truth of what has been proclaimed to them from the pages of Scripture. Do you guys remember this all the way back in Genesis 4? The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He, Cain, said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? You know, that was a hard attitude of Joseph's brothers at this time prior to their consciences being pricked. I don't know where my brother is. Am I my brother's keeper? Probably a wild animal got him and they deceived their father with this coat dipped in blood. Verse 10, Genesis 4, the Lord confronting Cain. He says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Well, that blood, that cry for justice from the ground, testifies to a reckoning that a just God will bring. And this is what Reuben understood. Now, because of our sin against our our brother, there comes an answer, a court case, a summons, a subpoena to stand before the one who will hold us accountable for our actions. There is a reckoning for his blood, and that's why we are here in this jail cell. Other passages of Scripture reiterate the same. When Moses disembarks the ark, I'm sorry, Noah disembarks the ark, and God lays out principles whereby in a fallen world, a basic sense of order can hold man together. In a body politic, he says that for man's life, I will require a life. If you take a life into your own hands, if you are guilty of shedding innocent blood, that blood guilt cries out a reckoning day, a day of reckoning against you in the land. And so the brothers are realizing this. Their hearts are awakened to the guilt of their own conscience and by the word of God that a reckoning is required. These divinely orchestrated circumstances, just like when the legitimate gospel is preached, have moved the brothers to confess their sin. We are guilty. These witnesses prove it. But then it raises the question, now what? Well, these circumstances not only lead unto a confession of sin, but surprisingly, shockingly so, the Spirit is at work in other ways as well. The circumstances lead Joseph to a heart of forgiveness. 
This is incredible. Verse 23, notice how he reacts to the situation. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. For a little context, Joseph speaks two languages now, having been thoroughly you know, brought up in the Egyptian culture, assumed the throne, speaking this foreign language. He has an interpreter, takes the Egyptian words, translates them into Hebrew, so the brothers understand, and vice versa. Now, Joseph understands his brothers perfectly, but they don't know that. He has not revealed his identity as of yet. And we talked about the purpose here. It's Joseph is testing his brothers, and God is using even this circumstance to bring them to a place of a softness of their soul, a place of repentance and confession. So Joseph maintains that anonymity, anonymity between them, does not reveal himself, but he must get out of the room real quick. Why? Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. This weeping, what does it demonstrate? Heart of forgiveness. Joseph, having been wronged by his brothers, having been separated from his family for two decades plus, having experienced this enslavement in the Potiphar's house, betrayed by his wife, falsely accused of rape, thrown into prison uh, in Potiphar, uh, Potiphar, then eventually getting this ticket out as God uses him to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, you would think Joseph, of all people, would have a lot more time in prison to stew on things and to think, man, if I ever get to a place of being able to do something about the injustices that have been inflicted upon me, you better believe my brothers have it coming to them. We talked about this in last sermon. This story reads like a classic revenge tale until we get to this moment and we see that Joseph does not have it in his heart to act vengefully. Why? Well, it's because of the covenant promises of the Lord. Joseph's brothers had come and they had bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Instantly, Joseph recognizes that God's word is being fulfilled. God had told Joseph by way of dream, your entire family will bow before you one day. And now as his brothers have come and bowed before him, he remembers the word of God. And so it is the word of God that compels Joseph to have a soft heart in this situation. He understands that these circumstances are not fate providing him the opportunity to enact revenge. No, they are the hand of God leading his brothers to him that God might change their heart reunite the covenant family and save the known world from famine and the line of the Messiah houses of provision that he has in the land of Egypt because he recognized the word of God and was living his life according to it. Think about it. When Joseph was in jail, did he sit there and stew and reflect upon the great victim status and the things that went wrong and how unfair it was and how he was innocently charged and he, an innocent man, was condemned and charged of things that he didn't do and, then, and let that grow a root of bitterness in his soul? No. Instead, he lived according to the word of God even when he was in prison and this prepared his heart to extend forgiveness and recognize the sovereign hand of God rather than take matters into his own hands take vengeance into his own hands the way the scriptures themselves forbid. So this is quite the circumstance, a heart of forgiveness in Joseph's life. He had not occupied, if he had not occupied himself with the task of stewardship and dominion, even when he was in prison, imagine the opportunities alone in Potiphar's jail to stew on the misfortunes and cultivate a root of bitterness. Hebrews 12, 15 through 17 tells us that that is what Esau did. So remember, Jacob's father was at odds with his twin brother, Jacob and Esau. But Esau entertained a root of bitterness when his brother tricked him out of the birthright. And that root of bitterness grew into a desire to kill his brother and so forth. How do you avoid a root of bitterness? Well, you stick close to the Word of God. You live your life according to the Word of God. You recognize that you yourself are a sinner. The judgment is in his hands, and he delegates it very particularly to certain agencies. It is not for you to circumvent his ways and means. Instead, it's for you. Your calling is to live faithful to the Lord under every circumstance, to follow his word, and to look for how he is ordering situations to accomplish his purposes. And so this is how Joseph lived his life, and as a consequence, his heart was moved with compassion toward his brothers even though they did deserve judgment. Number three, 
divinely orchestrated circumstances leading unto confession of sin, a heart of forgiveness, and then back to his brothers, the presumption of judgment. They assumed, and rightly so, that they were deserving of judgment. 22b, again, Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? Do not listen, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Do you see that Reuben assumes the punishments of God is what they're experiencing. He assumes that this is God's judgment because of sins committed against Joseph in years past. We see this attitude or this understanding further illustrated in verse 26 and following. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack, he gave his donkey fodder at the lodging place. He saw his money in the mouth of the sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And you can imagine the first thought is, oh, great. Uh, Now we're framed as thieves. Somebody put our money back in our sack to frame us that we are stealing, you know, that we didn't justly pay for our money, for the grain that we received, but we are stealing from the Lord of the land, unbeknownst to them, Joseph. Things go from bad to worse. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? The punishment is too much for us to bear. God's judgment has visited us. us. Truly, one more evidence that a reckoning for our brother's blood is fallen on us. 29, when they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. The presumption of judgment by Joseph's brothers. Now, I would go on to say, by application, that this is a necessary state of the soul. Have you read uh, Acts chapter 2 lately? So you think, oh, too many people in short-sighted lack of biblical understanding dismiss what they think of as kind of the violent overreaction of a vengeful God of the Old Testament in contrast with the New. They fail to understand the consistency of the Lord, and they fail to value His holiness and judgments. I'll tell you, there was an audience of one of the first sermons preached after Jesus had ascended in Acts chapter 2. And these people did not take lightly the holiness or judgments of the Lord. Listen, 2.36 Acts. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, Peter preaches, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the gospel. You killed him and he is your savior. You killed him and he is your savior. Do you notice how that parallels the story of Joseph's brothers? You sold him into slavery, and now he's saving your whole family from famine. Interesting. Now, how did the crowds react when they heard that the man that they had just condemned to death, you know, slaughter him, may his blood be on us and our children. They scream as the Romans, you know, and some of them reluctantly take Jesus Christ to that instrument of cruel, ex- uh, of cruel execution, the cross on Calvary. Now, when they heard this, the audience of Peter's message, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. That is an idiom that describes the way Joseph's brothers were feeling. Anguish of the soul, presumption of judgment. Now there comes a reckoning for his blood. And what did they do? The people on hearing Peter's message, they said to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Crying out in anguish. The grace of guilt visiting them in the proclamation of the gospel. What did Peter say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off. And notice the parallel where they had uh, brought down, they had wished a curse upon themselves. May this man's blood be on us and our children now. There is a promise that in this man's blood there is salvation for them and their children. But there is no shortcuts to this realization, is there? No one truly comes to a place of confession of sin, of brokenness of heart and repentance, until they realize as a state of their own soul that they deserve his judgments. No one is in a state of soul to confess sin truly and sincerely if they assume that they are owed something by God. Grace is not grace if he owes us anything. Mercy is not mercy if we have a leg to stand on. Uh, We are not victims. We, in in fact, are sinners. And this is the truth of the gospel. No one comes to the cross in true repentance if they feel they deserve God's attention. 
I'm so special, it's no wonder that Jesus died for me. That's not the heart of a true sinner. Realizing how they've offended the Lord and that they stand worthy of his judgments. They are oppressed. No one comes to the cross truly and repents their, from their sin if they think of themselves as an oppressed victim class in some way. And that they, or that they possess certain liberties and standing, human rights, and have every right to fight for them. Now, these kinds of things show up in other domains, but before the Lord, we don't have a leg to stand on. And we have no basis in and of ourselves in which to make our appeal. When we come to Jesus Christ, we come, come to him sincerely, understanding with the presumption of judgment, I am worthy of the wrath of God. Only his grace can save me. So all of these postures are the enemy of a gospel realization and a sincere confession of sin. And we should pray and thank the Lord if he's used life circumstances to bring you to the point. We should pray that he would do it with others, that God would arrange circumstances to break hearts, to make, the people, realize, to make people realize that they are guilty. And there comes a reckoning one day for the wrongs that they've committed. Then and only then, in this true confession of sin, Will they be in a state of soul to realize the gospel? This has broad application, by the way. Jacob himself may have wondered the same thing. There comes a reckoning for all my sins, Jacob might have thought. The way he deceived his brother, the way he acted in tricky ways and so forth, the way he tried to manipulate circumstances and use deception to his advantage. Like father, like son, he became the victim of that with his own sons, and thus this generational sin continues. Jacob himself, upon the testimony of his sons returning, might have thought, oh, it's all coming upon me. You remember what he confessed before Pharaoh later on? He says, few and evil have been my days. At 130, I believe, years of age, Jacob says, I don't have anything to stand for by way of legacy. I'm not proud of my life. I've lived a life clinging by a thread to the grace of God, not deserving a bit of it. It hasn't been a great glowing hero tale. No, I need the grace of God. Jacob himself may have been wondering this, recognizing his own crimes in chapter 27 and realizing in truth there is no statute of limitations on the judgments of God short of a substitute wrath-absorbing sacrifice. That's a message from the, these pages here. There is no statute of limitations on the judgments of God short of a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. That is to say, the, the judgment of guilty and condemnation for sin stands eternally unless and until you have a Savior who takes that punishment for you. I was uh, listening to a few sermons here and there from churches in the Savannah area because my oldest son is there in college and just wanted to get plugged in with a church. So kind of one of those typical big church multi-campus type deals. I tune in and they're like, yes, it's January. And we apologize if you invited a uh, guest. As some of you may know, we take the month of January to preach a series on finances every year. And I thought to myself, and just a little inside baseball, you guys. So if you're, if you're involved in administration of a church, guess when giving is the lowest? You know, it's usually the, the beginning of the year. People have less money, spent it all on Christmas. So just a little insight for you. If a church is doing a series on giving in the kind of January, February area, it's probably a result of a committee saying, how do we get more tithe in? And, you know, so all this inside baseball is in the back of my mind. Well, you know, I don't want to too hastily judge. I won't give you the name of this church or indict them too much. But it made me think, I wonder if there's a month dedicated to preaching on the judgments of God at that same church. What do you think? Well, you know, where would you put your money? You know, maybe not. But then let me ask you this question. Which do we need more? Which do we need more? A sermon series on finances for a month or a month preaching upon the judgments of God. And then look at the pages of Scripture, see where the emphasis is. If you just take the Scripture on the face of it, you're going to spend a lot more time preaching on the judgments of God than you might be comfortable with. But we need to realize the purpose for this kind of thing, this presumption of judgment, is an awareness. It's a precondition for gospel realization. Now, there's a famous song, uh, you know, a worship song. It's your kindness, Lord, that leads me to repentance. Is that true? Is it the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance? Well, in a sense, yes. But let me just remind you of the context of that verse as well. 
Because what I'm proclaiming to you from Genesis 42, and I would argue the consistent teaching of Scripture, is it's the judgments of God that lead us to repentance. So which is it, the kindness or judgments, one might ask. Well, let's go to Romans 2. I was reminded of this because Gene's been preaching to us from Romans. In chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, notice the context here. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So you see there, it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. But it's not the presumption of kindness. I deserve kindness because I'm so special that Jesus died for me because I'm so special. It's not that attitude. No, it's the kindness that is magnified to your heart when you realize that you deserve his judgments. How much more kind is the Lord to you if you are a sinner who deserves a reckoning for the bloodshed, as it were, of your crimes against the holy God? This is the presumption of judgment that leads the sinner to repent. Fourthly, a testimony of truth. Again, God is ordering the circumstances in Genesis 42 to accomplish several things at once. Confession of sin, a heart of forgiveness in the case of Joseph, presumption of judgment on behalf of his brothers, and a testimony of truth from the same. Back and notice, just think about the contrast between that a prior chapter. Do you remember in 37, after selling Joseph into slavery, the brothers go back and they give a testimony to their father. Uh, what, where's your brother? Why is there only 10 of you? Oh, uh, we don't know. Here's his coat. You tell me. Coat dipped in blood of many colors, that sign of the favor and future royalty, you know, bequeathed to him by his father, torn to shreds and dipped in the blood of a goat. And have DNA testing, presumably at that time, father assumes naturally that he's been torn limb from limb. It's Joseph's blood that he sees staining those robes that he once gave him in hopes that his son would carry forth the legacy and his, uh, of, and, and his hopes uh, from the beloved bride to the next generation and so forth that were invested in, in this. And so he is crestfallen. And this testimony includes what? Well, false atonement, shedding the blood of, a, of the wrong sacrifice to try to cover your tracks for selling your brother into slavery. So that's a wicked form of pagan false religion. Also deception, deceiving, bearing false witness, lying to your father. Also breaking up the covenant family, disregarding the purposes of God and the lineage of the Messiah and what the future might hold. And doing this selfishly out of resentment because of your jealousy and hatred for your brother, which you have no right to hold in your heart. After all, we're all sinners and so forth. This was the testimony that the brothers brought to their father. But now, as the gracious, as the grace of guilt has been used by God as a tool, and as 20 years have passed and their hearts have softened, we see a sharp contrast. Notice the testimony they bring back to their father now in verse 29 and following. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had, that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. The youngest is this day with, the father, with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me that I shall know, then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men and I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. It strikes me here, again, that contrast. This testimony of truth that they bring back to their father is in the context of what they had done in the past, illustrates a changing heart. Before, deception, betrayal, false witness, jealousy, and selfishness at the cost of 20-plus years of trauma for their father marked their testimony. But now, even with plenty of time in their journey home to come up with another tall tale to explain the circumstances, they resist the temptation to do so. And at the great cost of their own pride, and they simply tell their father the truth upon their return. They don't attempt to soften the blow of truth. And the grace of guilt is again realized in real time as we begin or as we continue to chart the changing and the softening heart of these brothers. 
There's a little work to be done yet in Jacob's heart, though, is there not? He is reluctant to let his youngest son go. Moved by fear and the anguish of the past, Jacob tends to cling tightly to his beloved. He does not want to fulfill the obligation of the man of land, unbeknownst to them, Joseph, to return his youngest and, in his mind, yet remaining son of the beloved bride, Rachel, on that long journey. And this brings up point number four or five and in closing of this message. Divinely orchestrated circumstances leading unto confession of sin, a heart of forgiveness, presumption of judgment, a testimony of truth, and finally, and most importantly, in, in whole or in summary, what I think is a sincere repentance. And I think Reuben's offer illustrates this. Let's read our final few verses here and see what we might glean. Verse 35 to the end of the chapter. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have betrayed me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. And Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons. If I do not bring him back to you, put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he, Jacob, said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. He is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol, or the place of the dead. I would suggest to you that Reuben's offer of two sons in exchange for bringing, uh, to be held as collateral again, right? If the obligation is not fulfilled, the man himself, or in this case, two sons, will be the payment. I suggest that Reuben's offer illustrates a sincere repentance, a turning. He's offering two sons as surety. In this, he recognizes and acknowledges his father's anguish at the thought of losing yet a second beloved son. As far as they know, and his father knows, Joseph has met his demise after they sold him into slavery, and now Jacob risks the loss of the second and only remaining beloved son of Rachel, Benjamin. So in the place of these two sons, Reuben offers his own, his own sons as collateral. Now this is quite different, isn't it, from what was offered in the past. Before, that blood-stained clothing offered to their father was an attempt to cover their tracks at the cost of their father's despair and two decades of trauma and anguish. But now, Reuben is offering his own children as consolation for his father's fears of losing a second son. God is healing this family. God is softening hearts. He's bringing them back together. Things are changing. Hearts that were stone cold have been softened by the work over decades of the Holy Spirit through the grace of guilt and through life circumstances, the consequences of sin and the knowledge of the truth to bring them to a place of reconciliation. Ultimately with God, that's the ultimate kind of reconciliation, but secondly with each other. The estrangement between Jacob and his sons, I mean, it was no secret. You can't, you know, hold resentment in your heart because of the favoritism of your father towards Joseph and not think poorly of your father as well. Do you think Joseph, Jacob's sons upheld the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land? No, they broke that commandment and many others and the rebellion against their father and against ultimately the Lord and his sovereign purposes. God will advance some. He had plans to advance Joseph. Even though they didn't think it was fair, God had favored Joseph. But notice why. God had favored and placed Joseph in a position of prominence, influence, riches, wealth, and a significant rulership over the whole land. Why? As a savior to save them from famine. In their short-sighted, jealous ignorance, they didn't realize that they resented God's favor and their father's favor upon their brother. Who is he? Why is he so special? Why don't I get special privileges? Where's my coat of many colors? Unbeknownst to them, God would ascend this savior, so to speak, a messianic ascension to deliver them from certain death and famine. And Joseph will lay his life down for this cause of serving the Lord as well. And in the end, when reconciliation finally comes, this is clear from the perspective 
of, from the sort of heaven's eye perspective, that God was obviously moving heaven and earth to accomplish his will. And his will would be evident not just in this family, but in the future entire family of God as he saves the line of the Messiah from certain death and preserves the lineage of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, if you will, the Joseph, the Jacob to come. This is what's going on. And the brothers are starting to see a little more clearly the big picture. They're starting to rise above the short-sighted, selfish wickedness of looking at the circumstances through a two-dimensional view. And their hearts are being lifted up to see things from a greater perspective via the Word of God. That They stand guilty of, of sin against their brother. And perhaps God has purposes in this situation. Hearts are changing and the circumstances reflect this. Reuben offers two sons in exchange for Benjamin to bring him back. The gospel is magnified in this. Now, when we look at Jacob's reluctance, that's also a little short-sighted, but it's easy for us to relate to. Would you send your youngest and most treasured child away on this journey with brothers of sordid character? The last time you entrusted them with your son, came back in a pile of bloody robes? I don't think so. You know, this is not something naturally that a parent would be willing to do so his hesitancy, we can understand. Jacob said, verse 38, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. And can't you see it? The patriarch broken, bent over by the, the difficulties of life and the trials that he's faced, head in hands, weeping and crying out in anguish, the, the famine doesn't get us, the, uh, the uh, difficulties on the journey will. I'll never see my son again. I've lost Simeon, I've lost Joseph, I'll lose Benjamin, I'll lose everyone to this famine between a rock and a hard place, crying out, there is no hope. Yet it is in this that the gospel is magnified. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. It is necessary that a son be given that the people of God might be saved. That is a message that is between the lines, if you will, in our text. Doesn't this become more clear? Remember that phrase? If the obligation is not fulfilled, the man himself will be the payment. Now would we, as parents, have the heart to offer our own sons on behalf of another, our own child? I don't think so. But doesn't this magnify the grace of God in offering Christ in the gospel? Romans 3.24, Gene will soon be preaching on this, trust in the future. I told him I'm going to give a little spoiler alert today. <laughs> Verse 24, let's back up to 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. How can God be just and how can man be forgiven? Only if a son is put forth as a propitiation. What does that mean? A wrath-absorbing sacrifice. Jacob was reluctant to send Benjamin into harm's way for the promise of deliverance from famine. But doesn't this magnify the grace of God the Father in the gospel? What is your favorite verse? Well, I know the favorite verse of many, perhaps the most popular in all of the Bible, is John 3.16. Hey, kids, raise your hand if you know John 3.16. All right, let's hear you recite it. For God... Very good. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Was there any hesitancy in, Father God, in our Father God when he presented or offered his Son as a substitute? Jacob was reluctant to send Benjamin, but God the Father, in love for a wicked world who deserved judgment, sent his Son as a propitiation for sins. Think of that phrase. If the obligation is not fulfilled, if what we owe to God because of our sin is not fulfilled, the man himself will be the payment. And this is the gospel. 
The only way for us to be freed from our obligation to the Lord, to be free from the hell and the judgment we deserve, is if the man himself will be the payment. So when God sent forth His Son as a propitiation for our sins, when He demonstrated His love for you and not withholding His one and only Son, Jacob had twelve, God the Father had one. Jacob's sons were all sinners. Jesus was perfect and sinless. Jacob's sons, He was sending them into harm's way, but they weren't even going to die unbeknownst to Him. But nevertheless, that was the case. Jesus would be killed on the cruel instrument of Roman torture and would suffer beyond what any human being could imagine. And so the grace of God's mercies in the giving of the Son on behalf of us is magnified in this story. Our obligation to the Lord is paid because the man himself, Jesus Christ, is our payment. So this morning, if you are in Jesus, you have just revisited, I trust, as far as the word has been rightly divided, more of that joy of your salvation, thankfulness that you should feel upon going over meditating on the heaven and earth that were moved to save you and how undeserving we truly are in our sins. If you're hearing this message and your heart is hard, perhaps you've held resentment towards others because you feel you have the right. Perhaps your heart is harder still and you have not come to the cross in salvation for salvation in the first place. For you, the grace of guilt may be realized as a result of the Spirit using these very words as we recall the things that you have done to break God's rules in your own heart. And for you, I pray that you would turn to the Son that was offered in your place, the man, Jesus Christ himself, as your payment. And look upon your life from heaven's eye view. Perhaps God has orchestrated all these circumstances to lead you to a confession of sin, a heart of forgiveness if you need to extend that to others. Perhaps he's leading you, even through this message, to realize the presumption of judgment that you've lived naively to all these years. Perhaps you will answer with the testimony of truth, I'm a sinner deserving of God's wrath, but in Jesus Christ, I have salvation. And then finally, a sincere repentance. Oh Lord, I will follow you now, because you have offered me in the gospel healing from sin and the punishment my sin deserves by Jesus Christ. I thank you for that. Now let me serve you with all my heart and soul and strength. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the message of hope found in your scriptures from the early pages of Genesis all the way to the close. We thank you for the glorious reality of their fulfillment in Christ our Savior and Lord. As we've heard this, the gospel today again reiterated and these glorious overtones from, your, uh, narr- from the narrative portions of your word past, I pray that they would etch deeper upon our souls the joy of our salvation. They would draw the lost to salvation and cause us to grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, turning from our sins and treasuring Him all the more, and then proclaiming that message to others. And all of this, that your word may go forth, and that your gospel, Lord Jesus, would provide hope for a starving world, famished for lack of a Savior. I pray that the spiritual famine that is in our land today would be answered by Jesus Christ, that you would use the crisis of this hour, Lord, to draw people's attention to the only place for hope is in that name, the holy name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.